0: Welcome to the Forward Minds podcast. I'm your host, Joy Asfar. Join me every month as we meet entrepreneurs and innovators who are propelling change in the world of sustainability. Listen to their stories and discover how they are shaping a new lifestyle. Hello, everyone. Today, our Forward Mind is Vanessa Barboni-Halik, the founder and CEO of Another Tomorrow. Modern Sustainable Luxury at Its Best, Another Tomorrow, focuses on three things. Conscious foundational clothes, education, and providing a platform for discovery, action, and activism. Let's find out more about Vanessa's switch from finance to fashion, and how the boundaries are there to be pushed when it comes to what responsible and ethical materials can achieve. Hi, Vanessa. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Foreign Minds. I'm very excited to have you on the first season of this podcast. I'm so happy to be with you, Joy. Thanks for joining. So we're going to get into your beautiful fashion brand another tomorrow in details later. But first, I would love to talk about your impressive career in finance and for you to give us a bit of a background. So first of all, how did you end up working in finance? Was it something that you've always thought about?
1: Oh, my gosh! No, finance uh, finance was such an accident. I grew up in the middle of the country um, in Iowa and Western Pennsylvania and Ohio. And honestly, as a kid, I thought, you know, I thought a bank was a teller. I had no idea that Wall Street even existed. And it was really when i when I got to college and I switched from architecture into economics that I was really fascinated with, you know, how the overall world worked and, you know, how our economic system tied it all together. But even then, I really didn't think that I would pursue a career in banking. Funny enough, I thought I would do something in diplomacy or in a think tank or in journalism. And the truth is, I applied for all of these fellowships in college. They all sounded so amazing. And I got none of them. And then... And then I applied for all of these banking jobs really because, you know, I had friends who were, you know, applying for these jobs and I had done some some interesting research in energy economics. I co authored a paper and I got almost all the banking offers. So it was I was really sort of faced I was with initially you. No choice. <laughs> yeah. It chose me. Clearly it chose it, me. It chose
0: you, of course. It chose me.
1: And so you spent fifteen years at Morgan Stanley, right? Yeah. Yeah. I spent 15 years focused on emerging markets. It was a fascinating way to to learn about the world and, and travel the world and really feel like a global citizen and how interconnected we all are. And I spent the latter kind of two thirds of my career really kind of almost like an entrepreneur, rebuilding businesses that have been really damaged in the economic crisis. And that, I think, was my first real taste of business building. Entrepreneurship. in
0: small companies and having yeah of course that's really exciting and so when did you I know it's hard to pinpoint the exact moment but when do you think you started having not doubts but maybe like that that itch to look at something else and start growing out of banking
1: Uh, truthfully (laughs) this is gonna sound terrible but from the moment I started in banking okay because (laughs) because it was such an accident you know it wasn't this intention and um And there were real conflicts um, internally within myself in in that job. You know, there were parts of it that I absolutely loved, but I had this really kind of uh, strong itch purpose-wise of, you know, putting my energy into something that I felt was super meaningful. And I think there were other elements that I had also, you know, left behind in choosing that path. Like, you know, my mother was an artist and my dad was a sociology professor, and so this idea of the creative that I thought I would get through architecture was also lacking. So I think that there were just, there are these sort of things, um, all along the way. I actually, I quit three times and the third time. <laughs> okay. was the good um, one? Yeah. I don't recommend doing that. I think they were super patient with me. Um, and you know, or oh, they just wanted to that. keep
0: you probably. Yeah.
1: <laughs> they were very persistent, but yeah, no, it was, it was something that I struggled with, with that throughout, but I think that, I didn't have the clear pull. It wasn't obvious to me where I was going to channel all of that energy. And it was really in end of 2016 into early 2017 when uh, it was a combination of things. One was I got this promotion that I thought was such a big deal that I really wanted as a woman, you know, that only goes so far in terms of fulfillment and really was a a clear uh, marker that this idea of satisfaction has to come from within. You know, it really has to come from your own value system. And also, I think that, um, you know, in this country, the Obama era maybe bred a little bit of complacency, but it was really clear at that time that the world was going like a completely different direction than I had anticipated. And I felt really motivated to be part of the solution. So it was a confluence of things.
0: So um, your story really resonates, I'm sure, with many people. Changing career paths and trying to add meaning to their jobs. So I know that it does with me because I quit the art world to set up my online platform for sustainable living. And it's I find it's very hard to get encouraged to shift direction sometimes, uh, especially if we are not, you know, if we don't have a degree in that specific industry. How did you did you feel that at some point you were validated in your mind to actually step into, I would say, fashion and maybe sustainable fashion?
1: You know, it's so funny. I had no qualifications whatsoever, really, to do <laughs> to do it. But funny enough, I don't think that that was what uh, stopped me uh, or gave me pause. I think partially because in, in the States and in New York and other places, there's such a strong culture of entrepreneurship. And so every day you're seeing people make these dramatic shifts sort of, you know, you can say, say like without permission, right? And so there's this this culture of the the possible, you know, that I think combined with that sort of early passion, it, it, you know, didn't didn't stop me. I think the challenging thing for me was that, you know, I was surrounded by so many people who I love and who, you know, cared for me in my old industry. And they were super protective of me. And they were kind of like, oh my God, are you really leaving like are you serious you're actually so it gave me this sense of wow you're like you're like burning down your your past to start anew and um that was tough you know because I think it came from a very well-intentioned place but it definitely made it harder to make the shift it's also
0: I think Probably the fact you're carrying in, uh, in, in finance was probably something that really helped you set up your new business because it's a very, you learn the different, you know, areas of businesses. And I think that probably helped you like just make that leap.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think so. It gives you a little bit of a framework that's quite helpful for, you know, the architecture of what you're trying to build
0: and some discipline, I guess. Also. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and so we fast forward a little bit. So you let li- you leave finance and you decide to launch another tomorrow, a sustainable fashion brand. You mentioned before your pull with your parents to a more creative journey, I would say, how do you think that creative journey started? What were your first step in the fashion industry?
1: You know, for me, it really came from my experience as a consumer. So you know really the whole genesis of the company was the fact that i had initially taken a sabbatical from finance thinking i'd go into sustainable finance learned about how horrifying the apparel industry was and then tried to apply that really as you know a customer and that's really what hit where i hit the wall and decided to start the company and so the way that i approached it in many respects was through the lens of who our customer is right and so how do we think about the market positioning through the lens of like what her pain points are? And how do we think about sustainability in the terms of, you know, making a difference through communicating in a way that can be heard and digested? And so a lot of it was really positioned through the lens of who we were trying to serve in addition to the planet. And so that was kind of the initial architecture. And then I started to build the team in a sort of organic way. I was very lucky that I was introduced early on to a woman who was very senior at a large, large fashion brand who had just come out of her role. And she really taught me the ropes of like brand building. So I got this kind of incredible mentorship from somebody really seasoned. And then she just started introducing me to people. And so it was kind of, you know, brand building education first. Then we brought on the sustainability team to say, okay, how does this, how do we do this practically speaking in a really sound scientific way? And then after we really felt like, okay, there's a business here, um, I was gratefully you know introduced to our creative director. And I'm definitely much more curator than artist. <laughs> and so it was always perfectly clear I was never going to be the designer, but I cared about the aesthetic uh, very much. And I wanted somebody who had deep, deep expertise in the industry to like, so they could really execute on a level that you know was on par with the current luxury brands.
0: Yes. I mean, when you look at your brand, the aesthetics are, as we can see, very important and it's very slick, very designed. And it's a very refreshing and sustainable fashion brand at that level of, of luxury. So to build upon a little bit on the sustainable team that you've built, I wanted to talk about those four sustainable pillars that your brand is based on. I think that's really... Really exciting. How hard was it to define your priorities and your focus? Because when you look into sustainability and fashion, as you said, it's extremely overwhelming. There are so many things we want to focus on, so many issues we want to find solutions for. How did you
1: decide what to pick
0: and what uh, to focus? Yeah, on? it's
1: such a great question. <laughs> um, you know, we really tried to do not everything because it's impossible to do everything, but to do really as much as we possibly could through the lens of environmental welfare, animal welfare, and human welfare, and within that market positioning, so for you know what made sense for the product. And the reason for that was that I had found in a lot of my own consumer research that many brands tried to solve one issue. And it's understandable because it's so difficult. But it's sort of internally inconsistent to say, at least for me, uh, to say, okay, you know, I am really comfortable, you know, protecting the environment and focusing on all of these sustainable materials, but I don't care if I'm going to pay the like the workers a living wage. So, so to me, it was really this idea of kind of internal consistency and a value system that hit on all three and all three points. And the challenges I think come from where there are trade offs, and so sometimes. I would say there are trade-offs between the environment, let's say, and animal welfare. And so how do you make those decisions? And I think that becomes a bit personal to the brand. And then you just have to be really transparent about it and just be honest.
0: Yeah, transparency is actually something I wanted to talk to you about because I find it's very refreshing on your website that all the information is there if you're looking for it, obviously, if (laughs) If you want to read it. You know, some people are... More interested than others, and so I really enjoyed browsing through it. And I actually read an interview where you mentioned that you were at the beginning surprised by how hard it was to come by information about clothes. And I re- do really relate to that because I remember going to Première Vision in Paris, and you know, you you get you go into this gigantic hall, and there's so many fabrics. And if you're really not into the fashion industry, it's very hard to find information. And even so, I would say as a business owner. In fashion, I think it's also very hard to get the information that you need. So I want to talk to you about transparency, and I know that's something it's something that you really want to tackle at another tomorrow. What type of system are you putting in place for that?
1: So it was it was interesting. We were forced to to gather so much information at the very outset because exactly what you talked about, right? It's very difficult to figure out the information. And so and even then we couldn't find any materials really that met our you know, values and aesthetic qualities. And so from the very beginning, we had to basically create entirely custom materials. And so what that meant was that we started to collect incredible data set around that. So in the example of like the, you know, sweater I'm wearing right now, you know, we literally buy the wool at the farm level in Tasmania. And so essentially what we've done from a transparency perspective is we've built out this entire database of information, which tracks exactly how every single garment is made, usually from the farm up and we've tackled transparency by using technology to create a digital identity where you can scan it on the care content label and really see from every step exactly how it was made and the choices that we made along the way that tie back to our values and why, you know, and where the trade-offs are. So that's available at the garment level. And then, you know, we also decided to just say, okay, let's take all the research that we've done in our frameworks and put it on the sustainability section of the website.
0: Okay, amazing. So basically you also, this I didn't know, so you create your own fabrics. Yeah. You don't go and pick, that's exciting. That's amazing. We had wow, to, know you that. know, we
1: really, really had to because I mean, sadly, and it's starting to change, but let's say you go to a mill and you say, okay, let me see everything that you do in a sustainable fabric, right? Sadly, more often than not, it is the least exciting <laughs> or least exceptional. I, mean, I know, of with course, the most compromises. It exists, but with the most compromises, and and oftentimes still not the degree of transparency that you might be looking for, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. And so, yeah, we we partner with mills to make almost entirely custom fabric.
0: Okay. So, do you find now that you now that you create your custom fabrics that you can work hand in hand with mills and fabric suppliers for them to start create new sustainable fabrics for you and also maybe for other, for other brands that are looking for it?
1: Definitely. I think that's one of the most exciting parts for us is that we're a little bit of a case study, you know, so they work on this with us on these projects. But then ultimately, if they come up with an amazing fabric that is, you know, sustainable and, and, and has this degree of traceability, then they can also start to expand that program to others. So that as a, you know, as a new company, that ability to catalyze change is really, really exciting.
0: It's amazing. It's it's another pillar of your company, actually, creating custom fabrics yeah. and launching new new products. Very fun. And so, I mean, we, we touched upon that idea, but how hard do you find? Uh, how did, How hard do you think it was to set up a supply chain for a specific fabric that fits with your brand's principle? I know that you have these uh, philanthropic activities that you do. Yeah. So how do, you, how do you set these up?
1: Well, it's, it's a little bit different based on the supply chain. In hindsight, it doesn't feel like it was that hard, but the truth, <laughs> the truth is it was pretty challenging. So, um, you know, we use a lot of wool, and I think that's the best example because we really felt strongly that we needed to have relationships directly at the farm level. And so we literally flew to Tasmania And met with these farms in Tasmania, ethical farms, to get to know them, you know, firsthand. And then uh, we had to deal with the logistics of getting the wool onto a boat to go to Italy and find mill partners that were willing to work with our wool, not their usual, you know, mass supply of wool, to make fabrics using our chemical standards, you know, using the best wastewater uh, standards, et cetera, that had to be exceptional. So, you know, it was not... Easy, easy. But, but once you have those <laughs> partners, true. you can really start to innovate with yes. them. So you know that is something that we have um, been doing all along. But yeah, it was it was challenging for sure.
0: And so, you, and you you build a really strong relationship because I'm sure restri- reaching out at the beginning to these suppliers in Italy who are used to work in their own ways and you oh, come yeah. and Im- impose, in a sense, your own methods of production and, you know, chemicals, it's, it's tough.
1: Yeah, no, it's true. And I I think that that was the one thing that I can advocate. And it's been hard, obviously, for anyone building a brand in the pandemic, but it really took showing up and like showing up repeatedly to show, I think also just the level of commitment and seriousness, because I think that that's one thing that as an entrepreneur, you're going to hear a lot of no's. You just do, and it's just turning the no into a yes is oftentimes just a function of showing up and demonstrating, you know, seriousness of uh, commitment.
0: Yes, of course. And I, as, as you mentioned with the pandemic, I think the the changes are going to come from the customers now. So they're going to ask you yep. more information, and so because customers are asking you for information, the suppliers with the brands in the middle are, are going to be obliged to impose those changes. So in in one way, it's quite exciting. I think um, so. Although, I think so. Although it's been very hard, I'm pretty sure the pandemic on uh, on on a small business a startup that just started. Did you have big challenges that you faced?
1: You know, it was uh, it was definitely not the year that we anticipated, to say the least. I mean, we <laughs> launched in January of last year. I think that for us, the you know two two kind of core challenges. One was. As a young company, a lot of what you do in the beginning is building community around the brand, right? And so it's great to be able to do that in all of the sort of normal ways of doing that. And uh, and that wasn't an option, right? So we had to get creative about how you build real relationships, how you build community. And so we found some great ways to do that and we did this like women for tomorrow series that was also supporting other women's initiatives who are really leading change in the, in their field and we've gotten to know some just incredible women throughout so that was one you know challenge and then the other challenge has obviously been you know the whole point for us is only to produce things that our customer needs and what our customer needs in a non-pandemic world <laughs> what our customer needs when you're working from home are like drastically (laughs) different and so how do you continue to just be focused and relevant while staying true to also your brand dna and and that for us was you know that took that was a little bit of a dance if i'm honest yes
0: yeah you you had to continue and pull on to to pull through to make sure that yeah that the year would go by.
1: Yeah, exactly. And now it's
0: opening up. So it's exciting. Oh, yeah, so it's no, good. Oh, no,
1: it's uh, it's really exciting energy and it's, it's, yeah, looks really good. And so on top of your sustainable practices, uh, congratulations.
0: You're now one of the first luxury fashion brand to be certified a B corporation.
1: Yes, we're so excited. This
0: is great. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about what's a B Corp and about the process? Because I know it's a, quite an intense process for a brand to go through and to be certified. So for a luxury brand in fashion, it's it's a great achievement.
1: Oh, thank you. No, it's it's really really meaningful to us because essentially, what a B Corp is is it says, okay, we're going to modify the capitalistic structure where normally you're only accountable to your shareholders, right? You're accountable to making as much money as possible for your shareholders. And what it does is it really codifies a, a stakeholder model. So you have to think about um, your impact on everyone who's considered a stakeholder in your company. So whether that's the people that you employ or your impact on the planet or your impact on your community, and it does so in a really thorough and detailed way. And you know everything from internal company processes to where and how you source your materials to, you know, what benefits uh, you have and and how much you pay your suppliers. And so um, and it creates a legal framework for all of this. And that to me, especially coming from finance, is so important is it creates a a legal framework and it creates alignment also with investors. And I think that that's where a lot of different early stage sustainable brands have run into trouble is that disconnect in terms of alignment. So it was quite a process.
0: And also you have to do, you, you have to do it every year and you have to uh, technically maintain.
1: every three. So you get, um, every three year, okay. yeah, you get certified and the, the initial certified certification process takes quite a while, but it's super worth it. And then it's every three years. So it, it, you have to stay honest, you know, which I think is, is really, really important. It creates real accountability. It keeps you on the
0: right path in a, Absolutely. In, in a way.
1: Yeah. And on a path of improvement even. So that's really exciting.
0: And so, what is next for another tomorrow? I know you're opening a shop. Yes, very soon.
1: Yeah. We're opening retail in uh, like roughly six weeks, and we're really excited about that. And, you know, again, it kind of comes back to community building. You know, I think that we have such an opportunity and an obligation to rebuild our cities and for us to to open here in New York at this time is really exciting and we're planning to do a lot of things with partners that we've gotten to know along the way and so it's kind of this like ecosystem of design and technology and sustainability that we're so excited about. So that's uh, that's our nearest term project and then our full resale uh, which comes on the heels of our size exchange program will launch in the fall. So, we're super excited about that as well.
0: So, th- can you tell me a little bit more about the resale? Because I think it's extremely exciting. Because I'd, when you include the resale, you'll include the total product life cycle. Yes. In a sense, you'll, you'll focus on also, you know, after I bought a shirt from you, what do I do with it if I'm not, if I just want to buy something else instead of just adding to the waste cycle?
1: Exactly. And that that, that to me is super crucial because. What we haven't seen in the market is we haven't seen uh, luxury brands owning their own resale, right? And I think that that's such a missed opportunity to really make sure that a product is taken care of for its full life cycle and finds the right owners and also kind of democratizes this brand experience, right? Because you can, I think about it as, it's kind of a funny analogy, but I think about it like BMW has a certified pre-owned car program, right? Where you feel very differently buying a car that's been owned before from them versus buying it off of like a used car lot, right? Because you know that there's, there's care and there's authentication. And then you have this whole brand experience. It's the same, right? And you can open it up to a bigger audience. So I think about that the same way for us. Clothing is an asset. How can we take that same model and apply it and so we're really really excited to do that. We expect we expect that it will largely be things like tailoring and dresses and blouses and probably not so much t-shirts. So we're working on a different no. take back program for t-shirts, but we're uh yeah, we're we're really thrilled to to bring this to life.
0: So then I will the way it would work is I would bring you let's say a jacket, you would put it back together and resell it in the sh- I mean, on your website?
1: Yes, exactly. So you okay. might say, OK, you know, another tomorrow. I love this jacket, but it's no longer for me. I, you'll send it to us and then we will inspect it. If we decide it needs to be repaired, we'll repair it. It goes up on the website. And once it sells, we split the proceeds for that sale between the person who owned it and you know obviously ourselves. So it works very similar and modeled to the way that the real real works in terms of the customer experience.
0: I think it's also a great way to push people to take care of their clothes a bit more. For sure. Because when you know when you buy something now you know that there's a resale value. Yes. And so the best which is really important so that the best quality you keep it in for many years, in a way, it's the best way to, uh, to sell it back for the highest resale value. Absolutely. And that's really, yeah, which is really interesting.
1: Yes. And I think, you know, for, for companies, it also is a really important shift in the incentive structure as well, because you would much rather produce something that has a really long life cycle and maybe you get to sell it twice or three, you know, three times. Exactly.
0: It actually goes along the investment of caring in Vessar Collective, which I'm sure you've seen. Yes. And, exactly and I'm exactly so and I'm really I'm I thought it was really interesting because I was reading about it and I saw that some brands were a little bit you know scared to put their clothes on Vestia Collective or they didn't really like it because when I would put it by myself they don't control the look of the product on the website yep so I would because I would take a picture at home obviously of exactly of shoes and yeah. it doesn't look great and so in a way it it doesn't translate the, the branding of, of the product. And so you're taking basically that in your own hands and you're basically bypassing that problem, which is very interesting because at least you're just controlling your the storytelling.
1: Absolutely. And the interesting thing about it too is that it's a better, for us, it's a better business model, right? Because we actually already have the creative assets, right? So these, if you're a third-party site and you're getting all of this product, for every single new individual item, you either have to shoot it or you have to leverage the imagery that the customer sent through, which, as you said, creates a really heterogeneous kind of experience. Whereas on our end, if you already have all of the assets, you just leverage what you already have. And it's very brand consistent.
0: Exactly. I, th- I think it's great. I can't wait to see it. And I hope you manage to do it in, uh, in Europe at some point.
1: No, no, it will be international. Absolutely. Yeah, we already ship globally and, and this will be international as well.
0: That's great. Very exciting. To conclude a little bit, I would love to go back a little bit to some more personal questions. Sure. What was the best part of changing your career path, you would say?
1: I think that the healthiest thing for me was moving into something that I didn't know anything about. You know, growing up in this really academic family and then also in finance, you know, there's this idea of like, you need to be the expert, you know, and and it's, it's like this knowledge and you, you know, you have to know everything and it it has to be perfect. And shifting careers completely made that an impossibility. And so I had to move into something where I didn't know anything. And it really became about, yes, you know, your, your vision and your intuition, but it really became about building a team of people who are the best and leveraging their expertise and and really letting them shine in those ways and putting it all together. So I think for me as a as kind of a, a perfectionist from birth, it's been very liberating to to let go of that idea of of needing to be the expert. And I think I've grown a lot in the experience.
0: And I guess it's also very exciting to be able to learn and to keep learning along oh, the yeah. way. And in sustainable fashion, I f- what I feel and what I love about it is that it's there's always brand new innovations all the time all the time in fabrics in materials and i think with time even in production processes we'll have innovations all the time so i think it's it's uh, you will will never be full experts
1: no no i've learned a tremendous amount whether you know initially it was all about supply chain and then you know as you said it just the innovation shifts it became technology and so yeah it's constant growth
0: and to completely finish, what advice would you give to someone who's deciding to switch to an entrepreneurial route?
1: Such a good question, uh, because I feel like I didn't listen to any of the advice that I got. So I'm always very cautious about it. <laughs> and I look back and I wish that I'd listen in certain instances. But I think I would say, um, you know, talk to people who've, who've been on the road before you. Think about not just the vision, but what the work will be like and, and whether that the actual work is something that will fulfill you. And then I really think there's a great book, actually, that that Seth Godin wrote called The Dip. And in it, there's kind of, he kind of talks a little bit about like this path, uh, situation. I think setting really setting boundaries is really important because I think being an entrepreneur really makes your job very personal. And I think it's important to set healthy boundaries to basically say, okay, I'm going to try this for X amount of time or I'm willing to put in X amount of money and these are going to be the markers of my success so that if you hit it, that's phenomenal. And if you don't, then you let go and you move on. Right. Because I think that that that's really, really important. Yes. It's, it's also a
0: very, I I don't know if you feel the same way, a very lonely path, an entrepreneurial route. (laughs) Uh, I feel that sometimes I wake up in the morning and I wonder what I'm doing. So as you said, also being surrounded with people who are experts in their own domains is really important for you to, you know, wake up and not freak out every time you're asking yourself a question.
1: Oh, the morning is the worst. I I don't know (laughs) the same, the morning is the worst. And, uh, you know, I, I think for me, um, building a community of other entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. like getting to know you and there have been like a remarkable group of women in particular that I've gotten to know. And, you know, to have those honest conversations of like, oh, my gosh, you know,
0: it's very reassuring. It's very reassuring. <laughs> yeah, exactly,
1: You know, because you're certainly not the only one.
0: No, no, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Vanessa. I really enjoyed our conversation. I can't wait to uh, to see more of uh, what you're doing and especially the resale part, which I'm very excited about. I hope you enjoyed uh, being on The Forward Minds
1: and hopefully see you very soon. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I love what you're building and uh, really excited to be a part of this conversation. Thank you so much, Vanessa. Thank you.